Hello and a belated Happy New Year to everyone. Welcome back to Material Matters with Grant Gibson. I've been doing this for three years now, but for listeners who might be new to the show, the idea is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Today, my guest is the designer and maker Tom Raffield. Now, Tom has built a hugely successful business by creating an array of products from wood that has been steam-bent into extraordinary shapes and which are sold by the likes of John Lewis and Heels. In doing so, he's effectively brought craft onto the British High Street. Not only that, but he's also designed installations at the Chelsea Flower Show, created steam-bent coffee kiosks in London's Royal Parks and famously built his own breathtaking house in South Cornwall that included, inevitably, a steam-bent timber facade. You may well recall that it featured on Channel 4's Grand Designs. Kevin MacLeod was so impressed that he described Tom as an Olympian house builder. It's safe to say that wood is a material that completely dominates Tom's life. Tom, very good to speak to you. How are you? Nice to speak to you too. I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a complete pleasure. Was that all reasonably accurate? I think so, yeah. I think the focus on steam bending and wood made me very happy because... um, (laughs) That's what I'm all about. Because that's what you do. Yeah, I mean, uh, before we get into steam bending and wood, which let's face it, is why we're here talking on Zoom. The first question I've been asking, well, throughout the past two years, it'd be lovely to think there'll come a time where I don't have to ask it anymore, but we're still very much in it, is how you've coped with the pandemic. I mean, I've got my own kind of story and I guess everyone else has, but I think it's been quite a frightening couple of years. I mean, coming out of what I think is the end now, personally in the business is is in remarkable shape but Mm. um at the start it was terrifying it's sort of been a real journey i'm just so relieved and happy we are where we are now but it was a scary phase and for me for the business you know i lost a lot of friends and and colleagues because we had to restructure and things weren't working because the market sort of just changed overnight really but actually ironically it made us stronger and made us more focused so yeah it's been a, a funny couple of years but really happy that we sort of I feel as though I'm on top of it now because some businesses interior businesses seem to have done pretty well I guess because everybody's stuck at home and and looking at where they live and how they live have you found yourself growing well, we have and That's the strange part for me, because I suppose there were elements of the business. For example, we were beginning to do a lot of bespoke work, working with some quite large architects and doing some really unusual projects and really pushing the boundaries of steam bending and starting to use it Mm. for architectural purposes. So that was really exciting for me. And that was the upsetting part because we had to stop that. And I feel like it was a good business decision, but personally, I absolutely loved that part of the business. So that was a real shame. But the online side, selling to our kind of customers that were stuck at home, that was really strong and that's continued to grow. And that's our focus now. So it's been scary, but actually now quite exciting that we've got a real direction and you know our brand if you like has has grown exponentially we're always pushing and creating new products and the market seems fantastic so Mm. that side of things is great but you know i'm a creative person i love to try and explore how to use steam bending and how to sort of use design in different new ways. So the bespoke side was really exciting for me. So it's a shame that we we aren't doing that. But hopefully in the future, we can go back to it. Well, I was going to ask, is that not coming back now? It is coming back. 
I suppose I'm not quite ready and I don't think the business is quite ready to sort of go on that journey again. And honestly, everything's still a bit sort of up in the air. So, I mean, look, our business has never done so well. We're in a really strong, good position. And I feel like I have an obligation to everyone that works here to sort of keep the business going along that path. So anything else is is potentially quite risky. Mm. I mean, one of the things we try to do is place these conversations for our listeners. I'm looking at you over Zoom. Um, you're not giving a lot away with your backdrop. <laughs> it's just a plain white wall behind you. But maybe you can describe your workshop for the listeners. This is the only quiet room in the whole workshop. So I can happily go into the workshop, but we won't hear each other because there's <laughs> banging and drilling and, you know, uh, there's all sorts going on. So I have a sort of design studio where I kind of create all of the the new products and develop new ways of steam bending wood and, you know, just a small very basic modest studio but that's where I sort of do all the creative stuff and then we have a sort of large workshop or I hate to call it factory but I guess it is a a factory if you like of sorts where we've got lots of makers steam bending and crafting our products so I keep them separate because I for me to be creative you know often I work all night or be completely focused and won't want to have meetings or talk about other bits and pieces. So I keep them separate for that reason. But the big workshop where everybody works is a fantastic space. It's quite a new, new space. We kind of were living the dream and having, we had lots of sheds and little studios in, in the woods, but actually the reality of the situation was it was damp and for steam bending wood, although you'd think that would be okay, it actually wasn't. So it, there were lots of problems with working in that way. So we, we've got this brand new big industrial unit now and it's absolutely fantastic because it means that we can craft the best product that we can. Still in Cornwall? Still in Cornwall, yep. Yeah. Still in Cornwall by the sea, but it's um, it's not a lovely little woodwork shop in the woods now. Um, yeah. It's this massive building, but it's, uh, it's a fantastic place to do what we do. And how big is the team nowadays? It's growing all the time. I think there's about 35 of us all together. Right. Yeah. So it's it's quite large. And as I say, we've had a really good run of things the last year. And it's an exciting time for us. Mm. And presumably, as you've grown, your role has changed. I mean, are you doing as much hands-on making as you used to do? The way I design means that I'm always in the workshop making. I've had a go at trying to be a businessman and sit in front of a computer and, but it's just not me. I can't do it. I'm awful. So I'm very fortunate. I've surrounded myself with a really competent team and I help lead that team. But ultimately I don't get massively involved in the operational things. I really focus on the design and for me, that means making. So design through making, I'm really passionate about that kind of method of creating newness so i'm still very hands-on in my own way but i guess i'm not making all of the products that go out to the different people although when things go wrong i definitely do Mm. and i'm always trying to change tools and jigs and stuff but it's just yeah it's uh it's something i love doing so i can't help myself so i was going to ask you this later in the interview but since we're kind of talking about it now I'm kind of intrigued by your process do you draw tom or are you kind of designing whilst making I do draw, but I don't know why I bother because (laughs) I never make the things I draw and I'm awful at drawing. So I could spend a couple of hours drawing, feeling really creative and drawing. But for me personally, drawing is just, is lazy really, because I know I'm not going to be productive. So as soon as I go into a studio and start playing with bits of wood and old bends and 
you know, cutting things out and playing around with materials. And that's when I'm the most productive and creative. And often maybe I'll start with a drawing or an idea, but the reality is the the end result is completely different. And it's only through trial and error through making in a workshop where that kind of process comes alive and I, I can really do something or hopefully original. Mm. The purpose of this podcast is to talk about materials and techniques. You've established this reputation for making products out of steam bending. I mean, can we maybe explain to people who might not have expertise in wood what steam bending is and, and traditionally how it works? Because I know you've brought up your own or developed your own technique, but traditionally in the first instance, how do you steam bend wood? Well, it, it's probably the most unorthodox woodworking process out there. And that's why I love it. Cause I'm so impatient. It's, it's really <laughs> fast pace and actually quite a creative process. I think it's the, the Romans, the Vikings were doing it. It's been around for so long. It's so simple. You get freshly sawn wood and the woods that bend well are the sort of temperate English hardwoods like oak, ash, beech. And you're basically getting the moisture back into the wood and then using heat to sort of plasticize the wood almost. So it's bendy. So what you do is you put a, a strip or a plank of wood in a chamber and you fill it with steam. And that's where you kind of get the temperature and the steaming pressure and everything just right. But essentially it's very basic. And then you take it out and you've got that sort of magical moment. Perhaps it's 20 seconds, depends on the thickness. Maybe it's a one minute and the wood just behaves like rubber. So you can bend and twist it and create these sort of unusual three-dimensional shapes and then it dries and it stays in that form well hopefully um <laughs> there's a lot more to it and i suppose you know through history you can see steam bending's used a lot in sort of boat building industry and well i remember being in the steinway factory in hamburg and watching i mean about three guys steam bending the frame of a piano oh, wow. grand piano and it's an extraordinary thing yeah. that they do you know yeah. massive jig and they just, yeah, these three guys are just pushing this wood into place. It's, it's, you know, oh, it's I'd a love hell of a process. That. Yeah. It's it really, is. Yeah, you it, really it should. Is. It's great. Drop Steinway a line. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I, I must do that. And that's the thing. Everyone, everyone takes this sort of really basic format of how wood bends and they develop their own ways of making tools and making jigs and steaming the wood to then create their end result. It's a really magical process and I suppose it's been used for weapons and sort of, you know, Michael Thonet, of course, the mm. number 14 cafe chair, which we just sort of see everywhere. The first mass produced chair. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's so accessible. That's what I love about the process. Anyone can have a go at it and create something. And it, so for that, it's really magical. Yet it defies what people think can happen with you know, this really hard, solid piece of oak or ash. People don't realise that it can bend in that way. So as soon as someone has a go, it's mesmerising. You can just suddenly understand how it's been used for millennia and actually that it's got so much potential. And I suppose that's what I can't let go of. There's still such a lot that you can do with this process especially in the 21st century as steam sustainability and things become more important. Yeah, I mean, we'll get on to sustainability, I suspect. But I'm interested in your process because you've developed your own way of steam bending and I'm wondering how that's different from, well, the method you've just described. Initially, I came up with this process and it was actually at university and it's using a bag. So before you'd put the, the piece of wood in a chamber and then you'd steam it and then you take it out, but you've only got 30 seconds to bend it. And then there's other limitations because as soon as you start bending it around a tight curve, you need to use these steel compression straps, which push the wood down and stop it from splitting. So it really limited what, what you could actually achieve with it. 
so what I did is I came up with this bag technique and then this compression strap method, which didn't need you to use the end stops of the wood. What that meant was you could create these complex three-dimensional bends in one plank of wood, which essentially allowed you to do far more and be really creative with the process. But realistically, as I've sort of started running a business and attempting to make money, I realized that wasn't a very profitable way of steam bending wood. I still use it sometimes. Why is that? It's messy. Um, right. It's time consuming. And although you can c- kind of create any bend, <laughs> it takes a long time uh, right. to do. So arguably, it, I mean, if you were to do one-off pieces of art, then it would be the most fantastic process. And I sometimes use it for prototyping and for, for that reason, but for manufacture, it's no good. But what it did was it really taught me uh, and made me understand the sort of principles of steam bending and gave me the confidence to always make my own tools and steam wood in a certain way. And so I suppose in my own little world, push the boundaries. So you talk about the different manufacturers using different steaming techniques and processes and tooling, and that's exactly what it is. I don't feel as though I've sort of changed the world with this sort of bag technique, but really like other craftspeople, I use the process in my own little way to create a bend which or a product which is original and that's the beautiful thing like a potter might use a you know a, a wheel in a certain way to create a unique style of pot that's really what i'm doing there's not a lot of intellectual property in it it's just more a sort of a love and a passion for the craft and an understanding of it i was gonna say do you still think of yourself as a craftsperson or are you a manufacturer now and is there a difference I'm definitely not a manufacturer. Um, (laughs) I'm definitely not allowed in that camp. You see myself as a sort of merge between being an artist, designer, craftsman. That's kind of how I see it. I've I've got a real love for wood and steam bending and I keep thinking I'm going to move on and do something else, but I can't because it just draws me back. I just love Mm. it so much. Mm. So I've had to accept that now really. Um, And I don't, I don't care really whether that just makes me a, a sort of just a craftsperson and not an artist because I just love steam bending and I love wood. So I don't know what I am, but I just, fair enough. No, no fair sure. enough. Labels are bad anyway. They are, aren't they? Yeah, they are. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in how this all started, Tom. What is it about wood and this method of working with the material that you find so fascinating? I mean, is, is there an emotional pull I'm guessing you didn't start bending wood and immediately think, well, I'm going to make loads of money from this. So I'm just wondering how it makes you feel when you're, steam bending well i did actually i oh, did, did you? i did start bending wood and think i'm i'm going to change the world i don't think i thought i'm going to make loads of money because i'm i think unfortunately for everyone in the business i'm not that money orientated but mm. i did think i was going to change the world with steam bending i was very wrong but anyway <laughs> young optimism but it was at university i kind of never worked with wood and I certainly never worked with steam bending and I remember there being a materials project. So I thought oh, I'll work with wood. I've never worked with wood before. You know, it doesn't particularly interest me. It looks really too laborious and I'm way too impatient. And then I found, I thought, well, how do you bend wood? And then I found steam bending. So I went down to a local, this was in Falmouth. So I went down to a local boatyard and I just saw these guys just steam bend. I think it was just a gunnel, just a, a strip of wood on the edge of this sort of big, traditional boat and I was just from that moment on I was just absolutely mesmerized by it I couldn't believe this thick slab of oak was just bending you know like a piece of rubber and being attached to this boat and I was really fascinated by that that just hooked me and well that was 
20 years ago now, still every day, I, I still feel passionately about the process and about the material and think, oh, there's so much still that needs to be done with it. There's so much you can do. And so, yeah, it's a strange thing, but that's the journey that I've been on really. Mm. Can we talk about your background? Because reading all the press clippings and you've alluded to it just now, your life appeared to start when you arrived at Falmouth College of Art, but you grew up in Exmoor in Devon. Were your parents makers and designers? My mum, very much an artist, but no, I, I, I grew up on a sort of garden centre. So we had a sort of strange looking back now thinking there's a, sort of a small garden centre on the edge of Exmoor, but it was just a beautiful existence, you know, very wild and I was very free. And my mum was an artist and my dad ran a business, run this garden centre. So I, I kind of, from an early age, knew I wanted to be very independent and have my own business but equally I wanted to do something creative so that was the sort of the, the seed was sown really and then I wasn't particularly academic so that well, I was going to ask what you were like at school no I was so I've I just really been so dyslexic um mm. and so through through school um really struggled were you diagnosed early yes yeah I was all right it's all very young but I think um, as soon as I started to do creative things, I sort of, everything made sense to me. And especially as soon as I started using my hands, I've always loved making um, mm. and doing something with my hands. So it made sense. I feel as though I found the perfect thing for me. There would not be a better career uh, that I could have had. Designing things out of wood and making things out of wood is absolutely perfect for me. <laughs> mm. I mean, how did the dyslexia affect your, your school life? We've had so many people on this show who've been diagnosed with dyslexia. It's quite intriguing. And, and one of the things they say is that it allows them to see the world in a slightly different way. And I'm just wondering if you feel that that's true for you. Oh, definitely. Mm. I mean, I've had lots of friends, school friends that can't believe it. They sort of see one of our lights in John Lewis or something and they get in touch. Like, oh my gosh, wow. Because I was really... I wasn't particularly good at school. I excelled in I woodwork and art, basically. They were the mm. two subjects that I did well in. Everything else was a bit of a flop. But it's, yeah, I completely see, I even now, I, I see things completely differently to other people. And, and I think most of the time, perhaps that's not massively positive, but in terms of creativity and in my own little world, it's brilliant. I love it. So I'm very happy. When isn't it positive? Well, I suppose when you're sitting in a meeting with 10 others and you just don't really understand or you're not particularly interested and they're just like, oh, come on, Tom. <laughs> so, but it's uh, so in that, in that instance, perhaps. So were you always going to be a designer or a maker? I think so. Yeah. Mm. Designer or maker or artist something along those lines. And why Falmouth? Why did, why did you decide to study at Falmouth? I'm intrigued because it's a couple of hours away from Exmoor, but it's still in the southwest. Was it important to be in that part of the country or was it the course? Because you studied 3D design for sustainability, I believe. So I did have a good look at other courses around, but if I'm honest, um, when I was 15, I remember going down to Falmouth and making my mum enrol me on, on a boat building course down there because right. I was so blown away by just how magical it was. And from that age, I've had an absolute love of, of Cornwall and Falmouth. And so as soon as this course came up, it was just a good fit for me. I was beginning to be really interested in the environment and I knew if I wanted to be a designer, I wanted to not have a negative impact and just learn how I could do that. So the course was quite a young course. 
Falmouth Art College had a good reputation. And so, you know, it was a great few years for me. I mean, where did the interest in sustainability come from? Because I think you must have enrolled at Falmouth in 2002. And the whole climate crisis was not front and centre in the debate at that point, I don't think. Many ambitious designers were going to work with big Italian manufacturers. You know, that that was the kind of alpha and omega for many. Mm. So you doing sustainability, why? Honestly, I think it's because I grew up in the countryside on Exmoor and I had such a huge appreciation of nature and I could see how much it benefited me. And I think though, you know, even at that time there were sort of scare stories and things beginning to happen. And I realized that if you were going to design products and get them manufactured, that was going to have an impact. And so I wanted to make sure that if I was going to design something that it was somehow going to have less of an impact than if I wasn't going to do that course so I or learn more about it. So I, I actually found the course and the sustainability side of things so fascinating. Yeah, really, really sucked me in. And I knew from that moment I wanted to make sure that anything I designed and made had, had a minimal impact in some way. And I wasn't going to be part of the sort of big problem, but hopefully be part of the solution. Do you feel part of the solution now? When I left university, I was very, very passionate about creating a handcrafted product made from local wood that was absolutely affordable. So I feel feel as though my sort of lifelong ethos is sort of, it's not quite come true because handcrafting a product in Cornwall does cost a bit of money. Yeah, it's not cheap, so yeah. I haven't managed to sort of make light shades and furniture for the masses and compete with Ikea, unfortunately. And I did start to, but it looked, soon looked as though I was going to become bankrupt. So I had to stop. <laughs> so you needed to open a large out of town shopping uh, yeah. center where you've only got one route through. That was, that was your flaw in your plan, obviously. Exactly. Yeah. You know, we succeed in many ways. I think for us, we create a really good quality product, which is designed to last a lifetime. And then we put a lot of thought into the actual design to hopefully make it timeless. We want people to sort of cherish that product. If they have a problem with it, we fix it for them. If when they're tired of that product, they hand it down or, you know, so that product, we don't want it to become obsolete. That's really our focus. And then surrounding that big picture are making sure that the material is sustainable the processes that we use aren't using a lot of energy we're not creating lots of wastage and if we are who's getting it we think about everything and it's really important to me and I've been doing this from the start and now obviously it's become such a kind of poignant topic but it's easy for us because we've been doing it from the start so actually I feel very proud of the way that we are sustainable so if I'm still upset sometimes that we have to get something in from a part in from China and it's you know the carbon footprint of that and even if you make sure the factory is fantastic over there and the the raw materials great still it's a shame but the market means that that is inevitable it's you can't get everything made in in England and in Cornwall certainly but we do our best and we understand where we can improve and when you compare one of our products to another competitive product, perhaps something that's mass produced in China, another designer brand that's mass produced in China, then it's like, wow, you know, I know our team are really proud of what we do. Which brands do you compare yourself? I'm intrigued. I don't know. So if you were to go, I suppose the things that we sit alongside in John Lewis or in Heels, and then when you look at how they're made and where they're made, and then you look at our products, I suppose that's our success really is we've come up with a product that's original, but then 
when it's sitting against its competitors, the price is actually quite affordable. And then on the, the, the backstory is that actually it's a very sustainable option. So that's what I'm very, very passionate about making craft relatively affordable, but also that's not a limiting factor. You can create craft on a large scale and compete with something that's mass produced in China and hey, it's sustainable and it's, you know, it's made here and it's using sustainably sourced wood and everything else. So that's what I'm really passionate about is making sure craft isn't the limiting factor. No, interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm keen just to pick up a bit more on your backstory because when you left Falmouth in 2005, you set up a company with a pair of other graduates from university called, and I can barely pronounce it, 666? Six sixes. Yeah. Six sixes. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. Oh, and wow. this notion, you're always going to work for yourself. You never fancied being in a practice with uh, a larger company. Do you know, quite honestly, I was so caught up in steam bending and steam bending in my own little way. You know, this, this new process that I created, I, f- I genuinely felt as though I could change the world with it. <laughs> Oh gosh. And so we, you know, and then these two other (laughs) friends at university, they had their own ideas too. So, you know, we really did want to change the world with locally sourced steam bent wood and change the contemporary design scene. And my God, we were were so clueless, but it was great fun. It was hard. It was great fun. We actually got, we got some prestigious awards and we got loads of publicity and stuff, but behind it all we had you know three dyslexics running a business is just i mean one's difficult enough but three it was just an absolute nightmare and the ethos of the business and what we were trying to achieve was at the time really really fun and really good and original so after i did that i was like right okay i need to learn from this because if i do that again i'm gonna go out of business so quick so i set up under my own name a couple of years later after sort of exploring that kind of business thing with those guys and set up under my own name and just focused on some of the things that did work within that business and sort of grew it from there. What did your business look like in terms of how you worked at that stage? Were you in the bottom of your mother's garden or something? Where, where were you and, what, and how did it work? Well, how, how did you know that? I genuinely was. Well, research, Tom. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. I was, yeah. I was at the end of mum's garden I've had several sheds, but that was probably the larger of the three and just started with a couple of products and built up from there, really. Originally, the shed was probably like six foot by six foot, then it was 12 foot by 12 foot. And then suddenly I had a sort of 12 foot by 20 foot shed and I was employing one person. So yeah, the, the business sort of gradually grew, but it was a sustainable business from the start. So the th- big thing that I learned from six sixes was I only spent what I had, uh, which was a very good lesson to learn, but quite obvious. And, um, I was able just to sort of get the pricing right. And it was at the time where online was just starting to take off. So I was able to live and work in Cornwall and sell online. And that was a huge help. And it sort of grew from there really. Mm. I mean, I'm always intrigued. You always seem, the, the way you've spoken, that you had a very keen sense of where you wanted to position yourself in the market. You know, your products, as we've discussed, are sold by John Lewis and Heels. They're not sold in galleries like, I don't know, Joseph Walsh's work is, for instance. Did you never want to work in galleries? That was a deliberate decision to get your products to as many people as you could. From an early stage, I got stung a little bit. So I, I created some works for example, we did a big sculpture and installation of Chelsea flower show and we did some other bits and pieces. And 
the accolades amazing so you know people loved it and it was fantastic but there's so much work that goes into creating a one-off piece especially with steam bending because of course you're making all the tools and everything joseph walsh's work i'm familiar absolutely beautiful and but it's 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 not steam bent so it's um, no sure it's, sure, it's, sure it's laminated so it's a different process but with steam bending you're making those tools and from a sustainability perspective you know you want to use those tools more than once and maybe you can create a piece that's got multiple similar bends in it so you can use that tool more than once but really if i'm honest i really struggled to make it work financially so when we did those one-off pieces it was great you know we got paid 15 grand fantastic but then we realized that we spent fifteen thousand pounds just on the steel work to make the wood and then another £10,000 on the wood. And then, well, what about paying ourselves? So it was very difficult for us to charge enough and to make money, but also to make it a sustainable sort of process. And I found that if I kind of took the time and made an original piece and then worked out how I could make that on scale, that was really exciting for me because I could create a handcrafted piece and spend the time working on how I could sort of make that on repeat but because we still were sort of putting it together by hand, each one came out slightly differently. And so it still had that kind of handcrafted original feel. That's what I've been coming to really. And that's what I've been really focusing on for the last sort of 15 years. And I suppose where my passion lies, it's really about thinking, okay, well, I have an opportunity here. I can sort of take on these mass produced pieces that are made far away and I can actually use these craft skills and techniques to compete with these mass-produced products and not just compete on price and everything, but on scalability as well. You know, I can scale this up. I can take on apprentices. I can train them up and they can be working. And, I, you know, the, the business is scalable. It doesn't just have to be me. And I found that a really beautiful part of the process of just letting go and suddenly having this range of products that doesn't need to be me making it. And in fact, there's these people in the workshop that can make it far better than me. That's been lovely, you know, creating this big thing from nothing. It's a nice, nice feeling. One of your first products was the number one pendant and your product range has oodles, oodles and oodles of light fittings in it. I mean, why the fascination with light? It was at university. I sort of created these chairs and I had all these little strips of wood and I didn't know what to do with them. And I thought, oh, I bet, you know, bending this thick, massive piece of wood is so tricky. I'm going to have a go at bending these thin strips. And it just, it, they, they bent so well. And then not only that, because it was so thin, the light emanated through the grain. And I was like, this is amazing. And I remember creating my first range of lights. And I actually had, I think it was a, a someone that was going to, I don't, I don't know if investor is quite the right word, but someone I think that was going to give me some money in return for something, but I can't remember then because as I said, I was very naive back then. <laughs> anyway, the next morning I made this- like, Sounds like you were bartering. Yeah, this fantastic range of lights. The next morning I came down, the lights were sort of drooped on the floor and just, and that was the sort of learning curve really. When, when you bend thin bits of wood, it, it can be amazing. But actually the next day, as the moisture gets back into the wood, they sort of just go to how they were before you bent them. Yeah, I guess just having all these offcuts of wood and not knowing what to do with them, but then seeing you can create tremendous value in them if you if you can create these sort of light fittings. But also looking at that, I've always wanted to take steam bending outside of boat building or chair making and apply it to different disciplines. So that's why a couple of years ago, architecture was so fascinating for me as creating um, light shades or sort of smaller accessories. It's really interesting because the process lends itself so well to these different disciplines. Mm, mm. I've been talking about architecture 
we kind of have to talk about the house that you built on Grand Desires. And I know, Tom, that your life has changed, so and you're, you're not there anymore. But it still seems to be an intrinsic part of your story, if you don't mind us just talking about it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, of course, yeah. Because you and your then-wife, Danny, bought a, a gamekeeper's lodge in 2011, which had no indoor bathroom, but it did come with seven acres of woodland. And you were going to do this house, you were going to build this house kind of yourselves. And I think to add an extra layer of tension, you then decided to go on Grand Designs while you were doing it. And I'm intrigued by the decision to go on Grand Designs. Why did you decide to do that? Was there a a business element in that decision um, that you would get a lot of free publicity? Or did you just want Kevin McLeod poking around while you're under huge stress? How does that work? It's a really good question. To this day, I have no idea why we did it. The, what the motivation was to do it. I think both myself and Danny felt as though what we'd come up with from a design perspective was really unique and original. We were so excited by it and the prospect of using the timber on site to bend this house, essentially, it just felt a really exciting project. And we were at a point in the business is beginning to do really well. And we were sort of, you know, beginning to understand what marketing was and thinking, oh, you know, if, if people just knew what we were doing in, in, in the sort of this corner of Cornwall, you know, steam bending this wood in this sort of workshop, and then we're going to steam bend this house. If people just knew it's a, you know, it'd be probably sell a few lampshades. And then suddenly it just happened, you know, two weeks later, Kevin was poking around in the garden and interviewing us. It felt absolutely surreal. And we were on that journey. I don't honestly think we gave it much thought. It wasn't a massively considered thing. I think we just kind of thought, oh, you know, like lots of things in life, you go for things and often things don't work or they don't happen. You just forget about them. And Grand Designs is one thing we thought, oh, we could do that. And then suddenly we were just doing it. I mean, it's funny that there are two threads, it seems to me, that run through this podcast increasingly, other than materials, of course, which is the number of people with dyslexia that I have on the show. And also you're the third person to have built a house on Grand Designs who I've interviewed in 71 episodes of this show, (laughs) which is kind of bizarre, but there must be something about the relationship between materials and building an extraordinary house that um, brings these people together. Yeah, I have to say it's the the most exciting thing. I mean, to design a house and then use your craft, use your skills to then make it. It's the most satisfying thing ever. So really, really happy that I did it. And I I suppose you want to just tell the world because you're so excited by it. Looking back now, I saw sort of I think I probably would have been happier just doing it but maybe not doing it on TV but anyway <laughs> never mind <laughs> well let I me mean, just to dwell on it for a second because the idea of it was that you kept the existing lodge and outhouse which was grade two listed I think I'm right in saying and then added this significantly large timber frame structure that was built into the landscape around it it was clad of course, in steam-bent timber, and most of the wood in the interior came from your own woodland at the time. And in effect, you were working on three buildings at the same time. I mean, did you have a sense of what you were taking on? Well, I think both myself and Danny, we were just incredibly ambitious and we did we felt like anything was possible and perhaps a little bit naive. So we just took it in our stride, really. That was the sort of relatively easy part because at the time, the business was really sort of booming and going well. So I was completely, both myself and Danny, we both, built that house together and was also trying to run the business. So it was a very, very difficult time. We did love it. We hated it at times. We we did love it and we were very passionate about what we were doing. So it didn't feel easy, but it felt manageable. Mm. I mean, the workshop has moved now, but at one point you built a link between your bedroom and to the place where you work in the workshop. I mean, that is a commitment 
too material, Tom. So he got straight out of bed and potentially you could go down this link and straight into the workshop, presumably in your pyjamas or whatever, whatever you wear and wore at night. Yeah, slippers and pyjamas. The reason for that, though, is you have to put the steamers on at least an hour before you bend wood. So, you know, it just made sense. <laughs> Fair enough. There's a moment where Kevin McLeod says, and, and here I'm going to quote, I'm not completely sure Tom is from this world. I think he was brought here from the planet Wood. Is that right, do you think? The thing is, I did talk to Kevin a lot about Wood and about steam bending, but he also is very passionate about Wood. He knows a lot about Wood and he's sort of really informed. So, you know, we had great conversations about it and I actually found it really interesting. So, yeah, looking back now, I don't think we ever talked about anything else, (laughs) but I certainly enjoyed myself. Good. I mean, he obviously took to you both. At the end, he described the house as the summation of your work. But that's not true, is it? There's more to come, surely. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it was a long time ago now, but 2016, definitely it was. But no, there's way more to come. I mean, at the moment, I'm just so focused on the business and making sure it gets through this sort of period. But as I say, it's going tremendously well and it's a really exciting time for us. And I'm starting to sort of think about other projects and other things. But no, this is just the beginning. There's so much, you know, I personally want to do. I want the business to do. There's so much we can collectively do as, as a company. So yeah, it's exciting. So definitely, definitely just the start, not not the end. Which I was going to say, this dovetails with my my final question because our time is essentially up. So what are the plans for the future, Tom? What can we expect from you? Well, I think I started out 20 years ago saying I wanted to change the world with steam bent wood. And I think that's still what I would like to do. (laughs) I feel feel like we can do it, but, you know, I feel as though we can create an alternative to mass produced products that are made far away. I think we can make a really good product that competes with those mass produced products in England. And that's what I want to do. And so that's the journey that we're on. Very good. Tom, that was wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Grant. Nice to speak to you. And to discover more about Tom, go to tomraphael.com. As ever, there are images from the interviews on my Instagram page, Grant on Design, and you can find all the podcasts I've done, sign up to my newsletter, and lots of other stuff at grantondesign.com. Finally, and this is really important too, If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive exclusive posts, blogs and thoughts from yours truly, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern, and any help you could offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Next up, I'll be talking to one of the grand dames of the British craft world, Alison Britton, about her relationship with clay. Look out for that next week. Thanks very much for listening. (laughs) 